If you have a Bible, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, no worries. The words will appear behind me when we get to those. If you don't have a Bible, those, please stop by and get one at the welcome desk. You can go right out the doors, uh, right in the center of the uh, foyer out there is a welcome center where we have a Bible. And I've said this, you know, many times over the years, and, and people have taken advantage of this. And, and I've heard stories that people come back to me and say, yeah, you know, when you said pick up a Bible, I did, and, uh, and God used it to really get a hold of my heart and, and transform my life. It was about 20 years ago. I was pretty new in, in pastoral ministry, and there was a young lady who wanted to meet with me. She's 28 years old and single, and so we scheduled an appointment. And when she got down to my office, she sat at the chair opposite me, and she started out right away with her uh, concern. She said to me, I need a husband. I said, well, it's not really what I do necessarily, but uh, I'm happy to talk with you about it. And she said, I've been praying and praying and praying and just pleading with God and uh, still, God has not brought me the one. And, you know, I, I affirmed that these were God-honoring desires that she wanted to be married. And I didn't talk to her about the goodness of God and God's good providence and His sovereignty and, and all of those things. And then I asked her a question. I said, just trying to get to the heart of it, I said, why, why is it that you want to be married so badly? What, what is it that you, you feel you're missing? She didn't answer those questions. She, she just went right into a pretty incredible story where she said, I have this friend, and she prayed and prayed that God would give her a husband, and God told her to close her eyes, open the Bible, and to let her finger rest on the text of Scripture, and therein he would reveal the name of her husband. And so she did that. She prayed and prayed, and she opened up her Bible, she closed her eyes, she let her finger rest on the text, and uh, sure enough, it was Luke 1.60, which says, and his name shall be John. This is what this, this girl across from me is telling me. And, uh, and so she said she wanted that same sort of experience. Now, I had a lot of questions about that uh, and some concerns that I didn't necessarily articulate. Uh, but one of, the th- one, of my, one of my concerns or my thoughts was, what if she had done this, this lady, and she closed her eyes and she let her finger rest on the text, and it was Genesis 10-9, and his name will be called Nimrod. Well, this is going to be tough, right? I mean, this is a strap. How do you find something? Now, I know a lot of Nimrods. I don't know anybody named Nimrod. Um, or what if, she, what if it was 1 Samuel 4 or 21, and uh, you'll call him Ichabod? I thought, what, is, what are you going to do here? I said, so what I tried to assure her was, uh, is that, look, you know, there are things in our life that we don't know answers to. There, there are things, questions that God doesn't reveal the answers to. There are things that we're never going to fully know and never fully understand this side of heaven. But there are some things that we must know. We absolutely have to know. And one of those is if we're going to live a life of peace, going to have any happiness at all, any joy in this life, any sense of relief, we must know that God is for us and not against us. We must know that God is not up in heaven holding over our heads our past and out to destroy us. How could we possibly live? If you've ever had anyone in your life that's been really angry at you, really mad, and, they, and you have wronged them, and they've had something they've held against you for years, maybe even decades, and you know, you know how this can eat at you. You know how this can really, this can cause restless nights and a loss of appetite if someone is absolutely against you. Well, what if that person were God? What if it were God? How can we live with peace? How could we ever live with joy or happiness if we thought that God was against us and out to destroy us? Well, how do we know? How can we know that God 
is for us. How can we know that He's forgiven all of our sins, that He's not holding against us something we did in the past or something even we did today? Well, the resurrection of Jesus is the answer to that question. It's not just something that happened in history, although certainly it is a real historical event, um, but it has ongoing implications for us today. So this morning, as we get into 1 Corinthians 15, I want to answer three questions. One of those is, the first one is, should we believe in a future resurrection for us? Should we believe in a future resurrection for us? Secondly, what are the present-day benefits of Jesus' resurrection? Is this just something that happened in history that doesn't impact us at all today? What are the present-day benefits of Jesus' resurrection? And then finally, who gets to enjoy these benefits? Who gets to enjoy the benefits of Jesus' resurrection? Uh, look with me, if you would, at 1 Corinthians 15. Again, if you don't have a Bible, the words will appear behind me. Here reads the word of the Lord. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ." 1 Corinthians was written by the Apostle Paul in the latter half of the first century. And, you know, Corinth was a very powerful uh, sort of bustling city about 50 miles west of Athens. And Paul was a guy who took, he went on church planting trips, missionary journeys. And after he spent 18 months in Corinth during his second missionary journey, he wrote them a letter, actually more than one letter. This is the first letter uh, that, that he wrote. And in this letter to the church at Corinth, which had all kinds of issues and problems and concerns, um, Paul attempted to answer their questions and address their objections. Well, there were some, the church at Corinth was made up of some Jewish folks who had come to trust in Christ and recognize him as the long-promised Messiah, but they're also predominantly a group of Gentiles or Greeks, and the Greeks, of course, had been influenced by Greek philosophy going back four or five hundred years before Jesus. I'm sure you probably heard the name Plato. Well, Plato, around 400 years before Christ, had this philosophy, if you will, um, called metaphysical dualism. All that means is he believed that physical matter Physical things like our bodies, those are evil. The only thing that was good, in his estimation, was the spiritual, right? The non-material, the non-physical. And so you had these people at Corinth who they actually could accept that Jesus was raised from the dead, but they could not accept that anybody else could be raised from the dead because their logic was, why would some God raise somebody from the dead to put them again in this sort of prison house of the soul, the physical body? And what Paul does is... He says to them, 
you know, you've accepted that Jesus could be raised from the dead. How could you not accept that his followers could be raised from the dead? He says, in, again, in verse 12, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? If there's no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. So what Paul is doing, he's confronting the inconsistency of their argument. He's pointing out the ways that they have failed in their thinking. If Christ is raised, then you can't say that no one is raised. In fact, Christ's resurrection is actually the first of many, many to come. So as it relates to our first question, should we believe that we'll experience a resurrection? Here's our first point. The resurrection of Jesus cannot be separated from the resurrection of those who belong to him. Resurrection of Jesus cannot be separated from those, the resurrection of those who belong to him. I got a text yesterday morning from one of my closest friends on the planet who shared with me that a mutual friend, a guy that we both deeply love, a pastor in, in South Africa, that he had lost his wife yesterday. She'd suffered a brain disease and really fought it valiantly for a long time, but succumbed to the disease yesterday. My friend was reaching out to tell me. Uh, three days earlier, on Wednesday, I got a text informing me that the mom of one of Capshaw's members had just died. She'd gotten sick uh, and was supposedly getting better. By all accounts, she was on the way up. She was improving, but really inexplicably, somewhat mysteriously, she just died all of a sudden. I called the lady who, who lost her mom, and we talked uh, for a while, prayed together. She said, I still, I still can't believe it. I'm in shock. We, we thought she was getting better. She said, I, I feel like I'm actually detached from myself right now. I don't know what to think. Two days before that, same week, on Monday, I was sitting next to Pastor Chris, and I received a text from a friend in California telling me that his mother had died. This is all one week. Not long before that, another friend of mine, a strong, healthy police officer, was working on something at home upstairs when he collapsed and died. His wife found him upstairs, cold and lifeless, cause of death unknown. Now, I could go on and on and on. I've gotten more texts, emails, and calls over the last two years informing me of an unexpected death from someone, of someone that I knew than maybe I have in the previous 20 years of ministry. Death and fear have stolen so much from us over the last two years. Death and fear have kept us locked down, isolated, and in some cases afraid and alone. And it hasn't been all COVID-related, of course, as you know. Um, some of you have lost family members to uh, cancer and lung disease or other sicknesses. My son and daughter-in-law lost a child still yet to be born within the last two years. Death has wrought havoc on us. My sister is a licensed social worker. She got her master's degree in social work from the University of Tennessee. And uh, she's a brilliant, godly woman, a Christian. We have a, a great relationship. It hasn't always been that way, I have to admit. There may or may not have been times growing up when one of us drove the car that we shared off and the other one jumped on the hood and held on for dear life. Um, there were times when uh, it was touch and go in terms of our friendship. Uh, but we have a good friendship now, a great relationship. Again, a, a godly woman, and extremely bright, way smarter than I. But, you know, as brothers and sisters do, we get into arguments sometimes. Sometimes we get into some real, they're, they're self-controlled, barely. But we get into these very, very passionate arguments. Well, as a social worker, 
One of the, one of the, the governing slogans of those in social work is this, the sun setting on a life is no less beautiful than the sun rising on a life. Now, the point being that the days of before a person dies, those days of decline and weakness and frailty, that those are no less beautiful than the days of youth and strength. And I say to my sister, this is absolutely, categorically false. This is wrong. This is terrible. Now, certainly, it's absolutely true. We should view those in their final days of life uh, as valuable, special, important, and cherished just as cherished as those in their youth. But as I've tried to persuade my sister to no avail, there's nothing dignified about death. There's nothing beautiful about the sun going down on a life. Death is our enemy. Death is evil. Death is frightening. Death is hideous. Death is cruel. There is nothing glorious about it. We weren't created to die. We, we can celebrate the lives of those who have gone on before us as we should, but we never celebrate death. Death entered the world by the sin of one man, Adam. Because of Adam's rebellion against God, the whole world was cursed, and now everything dies. It's the reason we have fights. It's the reason we have evil and wickedness and murder and injustice and oppression, and we could go on and on. The result of the fall of our first parents. In verse 22 that I read, Paul says, For as in Adam all die. When Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, their disobedience sent shockwaves through the whole world. They were exiled from the Garden of Eden by God Himself, and their lives and ours have been worse, infinitely worse, we could even say, because of it. Now every single person as descendants of Adam enters this world united with Adam, a recipient of his sin nature destined for death. But, look at the second part of verse 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. The resurrection of Jesus was the first resurrection of many to come. Adam was created to glorify God, to perfectly obey Him, to walk with God and to satisfy all of God's commands. Uh, but he failed horribly to do it. Opting instead for his own wisdom his own insights, his own ability, spurning the very good provisions that God had offered and, in fact, provided. But then Christ, who is known as the last Adam, Christ actually came and did perfectly glorify God with his life. He did fully and completely obey God in every way and satisfy all the requirements of God's law. He was raised from the dead by the power of God in victory over death and hell. And because Jesus was raised from the dead, and witnessed, Paul will say early in this chapter, in a part I didn't read, witnessed by 500 plus people. He was so human that, he, that even in his glorified body, he, he was so human that he cooked breakfast for his disciples and he ate with them. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, we can be certain that we too will be raised from the dead. Death does not have the last word. 2,000 years ago on this day, outside the walls of Jerusalem on the first day of the week, Death died. Death was put to death as Jesus destroyed it by conquering it along with hell and the grave. That's why we dress up today. That's why we celebrate today. That's why we have bold colors on. That's why I have a red jacket on. I've had five people ask me what color this jacket is. I don't know. But I'm in celebration. That's what we do. We celebrate because Jesus Christ conquered death and hell and the grave. 
And because of that, we don't live with fear concerning our own deaths. Our physical death just means a change of address. One day when Jesus returns, we'll get new bodies, resurrected bodies. One day, our physical bodies will be brought to life again, only they will be perfect bodies. No imperfections, nothing to be ashamed of, nothing to conceal, nothing to hide. Bodies that will never get sick or tired. Bodies that will never be riddled with cancer or disease. That's what awaits us because Jesus was resurrected, the first of many. Now, to our second question, though. Okay, that's in the future. Are there present-day benefits? Look at verses 17 and then 20. Paul says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And then look at this next phrase. And you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen, or verse 20 rather, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. So when Paul says if Christ has not been raised from the dead, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins, but Christ has been raised from the dead, what he's saying is the resurrection of Jesus means you're no longer in your sins. Your sins are no longer over you. They no longer condemn you. You're no longer guilty. To say we're no longer of our sins means that our sins have been forgiven in Christ. The present-day benefit of Jesus' resurrection is the permanent cancellation of our sin debt. Now, if you've been in church your, your whole life or very, very long at all, you, you've certainly heard, maybe a hundred times or a thousand times, Jesus Christ died for our sins. That's absolutely 100% true. That's absolutely true. And if you haven't been in church, what we mean by that is here we are, broken, sinful people. We've rebelled against a holy God. And because God is a holy and just God, our sins must be punished. Now, we understand this. We understand this on a horizontal level. If someone had committed a terrible, heinous crime, uh, rape or murder or assault or whatever it is, and, and the judge has said, you know what? Look, it's cool. Don't worry about it. It's fine. No worries. Well, how would you feel? We'd be scandalized by that, wouldn't we? We'd be horrified by that. We know that severe crimes must receive severe punishment. Well, what about the sins against a perfect and holy God? By the very people created to honor and obey Him. That deserves the most severe punishment. And the punishment for our sins was poured out on Jesus on the cross. The Scriptures say the whole point of Jesus' death was as a substitution. He didn't die for His sins. He had no sins. He died for our sins in our place. He bore responsibility for all the evil and all the wicked and all the junk of our lives. He took the wrath of God so that we deserve, that we deserve and He endured it in full consecration on the cross. But, but, Jesus' death in our place was not all that was necessary. Adrian Warnock, a New Testament scholar, says this, Despite our usual understanding that the cross alone is responsible for our forgiveness, Paul's very clear. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Unless Jesus had defeated death, we could never have been declared righteous. Because of His right, because of his right standing with God as the one who defeated death, His people are made righteous too. Had Jesus just died, do you realize this? Had Jesus just died and not been raised again, Death would still reign, and we would still languish in our sins. We would still be unforgiven. Now, here's our second point this morning in answer to the question about the present-day benefits. 
Jesus' resurrection is God's definitive declaration that our sins are forgiven and that God is now fully and forever for us in Christ. Now, what a difference this makes. What a difference to know that this very moment, God is for you, not against you. God is not up in heaven with a ledger, you know, keeping track, holding over your head all the ways that you've sinned, all the ways that I continue to sin. That's not the way that God works. Paul says, if the resurrection didn't place, you're still in your sins. All the stuff you've done, all the stunts you've pulled, all the people you've wronged, all the, the, the thoughts you've had, all the waywardness, it's all on you. You're responsible, the guilt is on you, the shame is on you, and you will pay for it. But, Paul says, since Christ has been raised, we're no longer still in our sin. Every sin, every sin, every selfish thought, every angry outburst, every mean-spirited comment, every secret lie, every greedy impulse, every lustful longing, all of it. It's all gone. It's all gone forever, forever gone. And we're given a clean slate. Now think about the sort of relief to live with that reality. Granted God's approval, assured of his love, we can know that God is for us and not against us, that he actually likes us. The resurrection means we're not in our sins anymore. We're no longer in our sins. Resurrection means that our greatest offenses have been covered by Jesus and God deemed his sacrifice for our sins as sufficient. Forgiveness is ours. God's love is ours. At this very moment, God loves you and he actually likes you. He delights in you. He will never hold anything over your head against you. But is this true for everyone? Is this true of everyone? The last question that I posed is, who gets to enjoy the benefits of this? Well, look at verses 22 and 23 again. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, look at this, those who belong to Christ. Not everyone experiences the benefits of Jesus' resurrection. Only, verse 23, those who belong to Christ. I mentioned a moment ago, we enter this world in Adam. Paul makes that point very clearly in verse 22. To say it a different way, we enter this world belonging to Adam. He is our representative. You want to say it a different way, you want to speak theologically, he is our federal head. He is the one to whom we belong. We weren't there when Adam sinned, obviously. There was no tangible sort of participation on our part. And yet what we are is directly impacted by this man. Now we sin because we're sinners. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. It goes to the very nature. We enter this world as rebels separated from God under His wrath. And we tend to deal with that separation from God in two different ways. Sometimes we run from God. And maybe that's your story this morning. You don't want to deal with God because you know you've ignored Him. You know you've rejected Him. You know you are not living according to His commands. You've not centered your life around Him. You're living for yourself. 
your, uh, your own progress, your financial prosperity, your career advancement, your own pleasure, the safety of your family, your personal health, whatever it is, that's actually what you're living for. And so you're running from God. You don't really want to, you don't want to go to God. You, you don't want to be in God's presence. You feel the angst. You feel the emptiness, the loneliness of being his enemy, which is what you are if you've not repented and believed. Now, the others deal with being under God's wrath by trying to satisfy God's wrath on their own, by their own good works, by their own behavior, by doing more and working more and trying harder and getting up earlier. They think they can do just enough, maybe, to satisfy God. But each failure, each setback, each botched attempt leads to more shame, more self-loathing, more feelings of frustration and hopelessness. And what do they do? What happens to those who go that route? They end up eventually giving up. I just can't do it. I can't do it. And I have friends in this church that I've spent time with, and they have said to me, that was me. I just kept trying and trying, and I thought, I know I can do this. But the more that I realized I couldn't, it just brought me to a place of despair and despondency, and I just quit. Now, there's a third way. There's a third way to respond the Bible offers. Aside from running from God or trying to make it to God on our own, that way is repentance and faith. Trusting in Jesus that though we are sinful, He is sinless. He actually died for us and was raised again for our justification. Because God is loving and merciful, God offers us a chance to turn from our own rebellion. If you've not put your faith in Christ, God is extending an invitation to you this morning to believe. To believe. To trust in Jesus' sacrifice for you. That's what it means to belong to Christ. Here's our final point this morning. To believe is to belong. When we trust in Jesus' death and resurrection for our sins, God unites us to Christ. So when we believe on Jesus, we are inseparably linked to, to Him. It's called our union with Christ, which is more than just a cold, sterile doctrine. It is a personal reality. Like a, like a vine or a branch is connected to a tree. Like a, a bride is, is united to her husband. Like a brick is connected to a building. Like a body is connected to the head of a body. Think about that. In 2009, I was preaching in Chihuahua, Mexico. I know you thought Chihuahua was just a tiny, annoying dog, but it's actually a real place. And I was there, and I was preaching uh, at these church plants. And the guy, my host was a guy by the name of Roger. And he said to me, I'd spent a day preaching. He said to me at the end, he said, look, under no circumstances will you leave this, this room right here after dark. And he pointed to, he said, about 100 yards from here, just last week, the cartel showed up with a bag over their shoulders, the kind you might think Santa Claus might have, and opened up the bag and just rolled out a bunch of human heads. Well, it's, a, it's a grotesque analogy, but I use it intentionally because we think about a head severed from the body. It is grotesque, isn't it? It is ill-fitting. It doesn't work. See, we're, we've been united with Christ. He is the head. We are the body. And we're, we're meant to live that way. This guy said, you wouldn't imagine, you can't imagine how gruesome this was. I thought to myself, I've seen Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul in their entirety. I, I do have an idea. I do have an idea, but I don't want to imagine it. 
The two are joined together, head and body. They can't be separated if life is to continue. Well, when we believe in Christ, we are inseparably united to Him. As a church body, we are united to Christ who is the head. We are His and He is ours. In a mysterious union that means everything to us, that's where the power to obey God comes from, Christ in us. That's where our strength to overcome temptation comes from, Christ in us. Sarah mentioned that beautiful video, so thankful for her courage and and honesty there. That's where the transforming power is at work, Christ in us. By virtue of our union with Christ, as far as God is concerned, what is true of Jesus has become true of us. And what makes this so amazing, among other things, not only does it mean we will be resurrected and receive new resurrection bodies, but it also means that His righteousness becomes our righteousness. So when God looks at us, He sees us with the righteousness of Christ. His perfect record of obedience becomes our perfect record of obedience. So when God sees us, He sees us as those who have obeyed Him in every way because of Christ. When God looks at us, He delights in us as He does His Son, Jesus. And I think that is a life-changing reality to recognize. I I had lunch with a guy 15, 18 years ago who who was an acclaimed firefighter who also just happened to really, really love ballroom dancing. These were his two passions. Now, I don't, I don't know anybody else. I've never met anybody else that had those particular passions. But he was very, very good at his job, but he loved ballroom dancing. But he told me, he said, I tried for so long to keep this from the, the people. In my, you know, firefighters, you're together, I don't know, sometimes a whole week or 72 hours together, uninterrupted and so on. He said, I really tried to keep this away from the people in my, my unit. But he said, somehow, one guy found out. And he said... The ridicule has been relentless, just relentless. He said, I'm with these guys every moment of every day, and all they want to talk about is my ballroom dancing and mock me for it. He said, I, he said, I have no, nothing else to believe. I can only believe that God has something against me, that God is out to get me. Because it happens like this all the time, he said. It just seems like things just don't go my way. And I said, are you trusting in Jesus Christ? And I knew he was. I knew this guy. I knew I'd known him for a couple of years at that point. I said, let me assure you, your appearances are misleading. If you are in Christ, if you put your faith in Jesus, God is absolutely, unequivocally for you, not against you. And yeah, I don't know how to make sense. I don't know how to, to, to undo what's been done. I mean, keep on dancing, right? Whatever it is. But I don't know how to undo it. But what I would say is this. This doesn't mean that God doesn't love you. It doesn't mean that God is not for you. In fact, in a way that you may not understand anytime soon, God is actually using these circumstances to increase your joy in Him, to strengthen your faith in Him, to enable you to persevere. to to allow you to experience the richness of His presence. Because Christ was resurrected, we know that those who have placed their faith in Him were no longer in our sins, but in fact the object of God's delight. Now what difference would it make in your life if you really believe that? What difference would it make in your life if you really believed that at this very moment God was taking great delight in you? 
How would it change the way you see suffering? How would it change the way you look at hardship? What difference would it make if you really believed at this moment that there's nothing you've ever done or will do or could do that will ever make God love you less or turn his back on you? I think it'll change our lives if we believe it. What difference would it make in your life if you knew with certainty that you'll receive a new resurrected body? How would that change the way you look at death? Well, this is true for all who belong to Jesus by believing on Him. And if you don't belong to Jesus, if you've never believed in Him, then you don't have a resurrected body to look forward to, not one, not, not one that will be in the presence of your Savior. In fact, right now, if you've not trusted in Christ, you are under God's wrath. It's true. You stand at this very moment condemned by God, but it doesn't have to be that way. Turn from your sin, acknowledge your sinfulness, and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. You will be delivered. You will be made new. And you will be able to join with all of us when we say with all our hearts about our Savior, crown Him with many crowns. He is worthy of our adulation. He is worthy of our adoration. He is worthy of our worship and praise. He is the King. And he will be crowned. And it gives great delight and joy to those who belong to him to sing about it even now. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, I, my heart breaks this morning for those who are hurting, those who are enduring physical pain, emotional pain, those who have a, a spouse or a child or a friend who's just barely hanging on. Father, I want to pray that you will pour out your comfort on them. I want to pray that you would just minister to them in a profound way by your Spirit. Holy Spirit, illumine our eyes, soften our hearts, convict us of our rebellion, encourage us, comfort us, and you pour out the love of the Father in our hearts. Lord, I pray for that one who's here this morning who doesn't know Jesus. Maybe a young child, maybe a, a student, maybe a, a young adult, a middle-aged person, maybe a senior adult. Lord, wherever that person is in his or her stage of life, I pray that you would arrest them this morning. Quicken their dead heart. Give them the grace to believe, to repent and believe. And Father, may we sing as we reflect on your good grace, your salvation, the hope that we have for the future, and the present day benefit that our sins are forgiven. May we sing with joy and integrity and with great hope, crown him with many crowns, the lamb upon his throne. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.